Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 169. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page. And don't forget about McClanahanAcademy.com. All those great courses, four great classes right now out there. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com where it's always free to enroll. And people that enroll get the best deals when the new courses come out. And I've got another one coming out probably in September uh, at the latest early October. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com and get that. Enroll and be part of the cool crowd. Okay, let's talk about the topic for today. Um, it's uh, I want to review a couple of books. We're going to take a break from Trump and all things Trump. We've got a caps war. We've got all this crazy stuff going on out there with Donald Trump. And maybe in the next episode, I'll talk about Donald Trump. But I want to talk about something else because it's important for how we understand American federalism. And it's important because the really the only recourse Americans have in this monstrosity of a general government, whether it's Trump or Obama or take your pick, is federalism. Um, yesterday, the Tenth Amendment Center made a meme. I've never been made a meme before, but I'm a meme now. I made a meme of uh, me saying that look, all this hand wringing that we have could be solved by federalism. It's true, on the left and the right. If we just went back to a point in time, where we can say, okay, look, all these issues we argue about. And uh, one of the uh, lefty uh, legal scholars, uh, Ian Milheiser, uh, posted something about California and the Trump administration going after California and their anti-smog legislation. That's ridiculous for them to do that. I mean, California wants to regulate smog in their own state. They should be able to do that. So I agree with them on that. But this is the issue, and, and it really comes back to what does the original Constitution say about the powers of the states vis-a-vis -vis the general government? And at some point, if that general government becomes too powerful and you can't, you can't do anything else, do you have a right to secede? Does a state have a right to secede? And so I want to cover a couple of books because the, the obvious response to that nowadays, no matter who you are, whether you advocate this on the left or you somehow say on the right, well, I think we should secede. Of course, anyone on the right that says that is going to be immediately called racist, homophobic, you know, sexist, whatever it is. They're only wanting to do this because of race. And of course, I was watching the legend and lies piece of garbage that Fox News put out in the last episode got into this. It's all treason. I mean, I might as well have been watching Eric Foner. But um, that's that's the charge. And even now, people on the left are facing that critique because those on the right are saying, you can't do that. You can't secede. You can't do that. You can't leave the government. We're going to force you to uh, do whatever we want to do. And, of course, this comes down to the big issue of the Supreme Court, what powers the Supreme Court have. And uh, should the Supreme Court nine judges be the final arbiter of every constitutional decision in America? And then should everything be national? I was called a, quote, a idiot <laughs> the other day uh, because of my, uh, my email about the 
Supreme Court. And if you're not on my email list, you need to go to my website and give me an email address and get on that. I give you a lot of emails on that email uh, list when I'm promoting a course or something like that. Most of the time, you get about one or two a week. That's it. So it's not oppressive. Just when I've got a new launch or something, you're going to get more. But uh, the fact is, the states are the only entity powerful enough to really check the general government. This is what the good folks at the 10th Amendment Center have been talking about for years now. It's what we talk about at the Abbeville Institute. And, of course, uh, Don Livingston, who's president at the Abbeville Institute, has been talking about this longer than the Abbeville Institute has been around. So have people like Clyde Wilson and others. I mean, this is something that has long been discussed, but uh, has gained a lot of traction in the last, say, 20 years or so. I mean, uh, if you had mentioned this in 1996, everyone would have thought you're crazy. Uh, and in fact, there was a really great book. It was kind of my gateway into this whole idea of uh, using these these uh, principles of, of originalism, secession, nullification. It was um, a book by the Kennedy brothers, Why Not Freedom? And a lot of people, oh, the Kennedy brothers are just a bunch of idiots. Um, but this is, I, I read this now, of course, they're more famous for The South is Right, and that book is sold you know, well over 100,000 copies. I mean, it has been a smashing success. But Why Not Freedom was what I read first. I mean, I, I saw this book in a, bar, in a bookstore, Barnes & Noble, something. I don't remember where I was when I was in college. And, and there it was. And I said, oh, that's pretty cool. So I pick it up and I read it. And, of course, the last chapter of the book is a discussion of the Tenth Amendment. And at the time, I was simply a Republican. And I read this, and I was kind of shocked. I mean, wait a second here. You're saying we need to nullify? We're saying we need to perhaps even secede? This is what you're saying? I, it, was, it was shocking to me. It was like hitting me over the head with a, with a sledgehammer. Uh, but I was, I was receptive to it, and some people aren't. Some, it takes some time. But this is ultimately where you go. If you want to go down that rabbit hole, it's ultimately where you go that you have to have the states get involved in this process if you're going to really seriously consider checking the power of the general government. Well, there's a historical paper trail here. You know, we states have tried this. We've states have tried nullification. States have tried secession. And so that historical paper trail needs to be discussed. And one of the charges, as I just mentioned, that's often brought up when you say these things is treason. This is treason if you do this. You cannot secede from the union. Treason. Uh, and I've argued over and over again, secession is not treason. It is the American principle. But I want to talk about two books that have come out in the last uh, last five years. In fact, one uh, last year and one a couple of years before that, that discuss this issue in a historical context. And so the first is titled, With Malice Towards Some, Treason and Loyalty in the Civil War Era. It's written by William Blair. And the other is Secession on Trial, the Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis by Cynthia Nicoletti. So these two books are interesting because it's a the, historians are seriously considering these issues for the first time in a long time. They're looking at these things, and I will say that both Nicoletti and Blair have done a very good job being pretty even-handed. Now, they would not fall on the side of saying that either, either one would say that secession is right or legal. But they are at least looking at these issues and not being highly partisan critical 
of the idea of secession. There being, in other words, good historians in looking at the issue. In fact, I'll say this about Cynthia Nicoletti. This was her dissertation, and it was uh, published uh, by Cambridge University Press in 2017, and it created quite a buzz. I mean, people were looking at this and saying, wow, this is going to be an interesting book. One thing I will say about it, and it shows you the current climate of the Academy in this particular book. In the first chapter... The introduction. She goes. She goes to great lengths to explain that she does not believe secession is legal or right. And she, of course, has to give the obligatory. The South is all about white supremacy and slavery. She has to say these things, and I mean, I think she believes that. Unfortunately, she she believes that. Uh, this is the. The whole idea that only the South was in favor of white supremacy is one of the greatest and most stupid arguments that anyone can say. Because, of course, you can dredge up quote after quote after quote from even Abraham Lincoln himself or those around him or Republicans in the North talking about how uh, they were the party of the white man. And the Democrats in the South, the party that believed in, quote, miscegenation because he had all these mulattoes running around. So if you want to vote for the white man, vote for the Republican. Quote after quote after quote. I mean, you you can't, you almost can't make up the stupidity of those that say the South was all about white supremacy and the North was all about equality and uh, you know helping the black man. I mean, this is just one of the most idiotic arguments you can make. But Nicoletti has to give the obligatory. I don't like the South. I don't like Jefferson Davis. I don't like any of these people. I have to begrudgingly write about these people. However, she does say that they were rather interesting. I mean, the, the legal team that was defending Davis, because that's what this book is about. It's about the the trial itself of Jefferson Davis. And all the Northerners who were in favor of his release. But... She has to say these things, and she explains very clearly why she has to say these things. Because she wants a job. You see, if you come out in the modern academy and say that, you know what, I think that secession was legal, and that uh, the South was unfairly uh, persecuted by the North and calling them traitors, that the North was doing something unjust and invading the South, this was simply the American principle of independence, you will never get a job. You will never get a job at a four-year institution because the people that work at these four institutions have cellophane for skin. Right? I mean, that's what they have. No, no, I, I take that back. Not cellophane for skin. They have tissue paper for skin. And they have the intellectual capacity at times of a cockroach. Because if you cannot, if you if you go beyond what they're comfortable with, and you say anything that could be, <gasps> if you say secession is, if you say the South had a, had a point, oh my gosh, you can't say that because you're going to be called all kinds of terrible names by the students, the uh, SJWs at the university, and so that's heat they don't want to take. 
it's an it's an anti-academic position, but it's what the academy does. And so Nicoletti is very early on saying, "I don't really believe these people." I mean, uh, I just I just wanted to look at this stuff and and have a scholarly book because nobody's really done it before. But please hire me, please hire me. I, I I'm not one of these neo confederates. In fact, in the beginning, uh, again in this chapter, when she cites some studies on secession, she says, "Well, I mean, these are pretty good, but unfortunately, these are neo confederates, and so we really can't, uh, you know, believe these people very much." I mean, this is just stupid. So someone like Bledsoe, Albert Taylor Bledsoe, who wrote, Is Davis a Traitor? Perhaps the best defense of secession in the 1860s. Because he was a partisan of the South, you can't believe what he's saying. I mean, the man went out and did a tremendous amount of work to justify secession on legal terms because he thought that that could be used in Davis's defense in a trial that never took place. And Nicoletti does a nice job explaining why the trial never took place because there probably wouldn't have been a verdict in favor of uh, the United States government. Davis probably would have been found not guilty, which would have been disastrous to the Union position. So you let him out, and now you can sit there and run around and still say secession was treason. We just were being magnanimous and saying that Davis, we're going to let Davis go because uh, we're good people in the North. We have our treasury of counterfeit virtue to uphold. And uh, we're, going to show, we're, going to, we're going to show mercy on the South. The fact is that most, the majority of Americans, North and South, in 1866, 1867, 1868, even in, into the teeth of Reconstruction, did not believe the South had committed treason in seceding from the Union. They did not believe that the South had done anything wrong other than fighting for independence, which they thought was uh, invalid. I mean, they wanted to maintain the Union, and they were fighting for the Union, but at the same time, they did not think that the South uh, was deserving of severe punishment. Now, there were those that did in the North. But if you put the South and the North together, the minority of the North, you have a majority of Americans in the post-war period that would favor the Southern position. Unfortunately, that majority could never, could never take hold uh, until after Reconstruction because you had the minority in the North, the radical Republicans essentially, controlling the government. This was a rump parliament. And uh, it was impossible for those who opposed the policies of the radical Republicans to make any headway. But uh, this is a valuable book. It's not going to be one that you, if you are in favor of secession, you're not going to read it and say, well, Nicoletti's one of us. She's not. And her concluding chapter is um, weak. She gets into the Texas v. White decision. And she essentially says the Supreme Court decided secession was illegal, and so secession is illegal. That's not really what the Supreme Court decided. The Supreme Court decided a state cannot unilaterally secede, but it also said that if the Congress essentially said that the state could leave, then the state could leave. This is what Texas v. White said. And so she gets into that particular issue. Again, she gets it a little wrong. 
But um, this book is valuable because people are actually talking about this from a scholarly position now. Mainstream academics, not just people who believe it, but mainstream academics. And, and again, even if they get it wrong, it's important to note that people are actually looking at the North. They're turning, they're turning the focus away from the South because the South, honestly, really is not that interesting during Reconstruction. It's not that interesting. Uh, what goes on in the South and what's happening in the South is is punishment. And so when you look at Southerners and what's happening there, it's not the most interesting part. You have to look at where the power is located, and that's the North. Also, people are starting to look at the North during the war. And larger and larger numbers. And that's the Blair book, looking at treason and loyalty. How do we define this term treason? Did Northerners think that the South committed treason during the war. I mean, if you, again, if you watch the legend and lies, they say it. The South committed treason. They're trying to cover up. The lost causes are trying to cover up treason. They're trying to cover up treason and their support for slavery by saying that this was a fight for independence. I mean, how stupid, again, is this particular position? But that's what they're trying to do. And so this Blair book is actually interesting because the title, With Malice Toward Some, this is taking on Lincoln's second inaugural where he says, With malice toward none, with charity for all, let us strive to bind up the nation's wounds. But Blair is saying, well, there was some malice here. I mean, look, these Northerners weren't just these good, kind-hearted people that were just trying to save the Union. They just had all this love for Southerners. Um, they're trying to save the South from itself. This is the modern kind of... Uh, mainstream Republican Party position. Look, we're in favor of Reconstruction. We're in favor of punishing the South because we're trying to save the South from itself. We needed to go in and make sure these good Southerners uh, just learned that what they were doing is all wrong. They, were just, they just didn't know what democracy was. They didn't know about American politics. They didn't know about American principles. They didn't know about any of these things. So we're trying to save the South from itself. You see, this is, this is the modern position on this particular issue. And so what Blair does, again, very interestingly, what Blair does is get into this idea, you know, how many Northerners did believe that the South committed treason? There's a lot. There are quite a few that believed the South was committing treason, and they wanted the South punished for it. Now, did that actually happen is the question. And this was still very much up in the air in uh, the 1860s and how this is going to be viewed. In fact, in his concluding chapter, he says that the secession coin turned up, or the treason coin turned up heads, meaning that we now, uh, after the war, most people didn't really think uh, that the South committed treason. That there, was, there were many that were saying, no, it wasn't treason. And some people were very upset about this. Wait a second, you know, we fought for four years against them, and now you're saying that they're not traitors? They were traitors. We want these people punished. And you had all these union veteran reunions where um, you know, people were, and in, in, in children of these people saying, well, I mean, yeah, we want these people punished. These are traitors. We shouldn't celebrate these people. We shouldn't, have, we shouldn't celebrate their flags or have their songs or have their Confederate veteran reunions. These things shouldn't happen. These people are traitors, and they should be punished as traitors. And so this is an interesting an interesting position as well. Uh, 
But Northerners, by 1868, Blair says, had turned, had discarded their acrimony for reconciliation. Um, and this is the interesting part of, of the entire process. Oh, oh, Blair also, when you get into some of the things he said, uh, Blair says that, you know, Lincoln did violate the Constitution, um, though he think, thinks the, the uh, offenses were minor and necessary, but he does think that the states went too far, the northern states went too far on several occasions regarding treatment of southern civilians. Uh, he doesn't understand why troops are deployed uh, to northern polling places during the war, and and he does say the abuse of civil liberties was was awful, but um, he's he's fairly uh, vanilla when it comes to uh, uh, bashing the northern uh, position during the war. Now, the whole point of this is reconciliation. You see, this all comes back to one thing. It all comes back to one thing. Should the North and South have, have reconciled? Should there have been reconciliation? You see, reconciliation is now the dirty word. When you look at uh, David Blight's Race and Reunion, essentially what he's going after in that particular book is reconciliation. And so now it's no longer, it's no longer in vogue to say that reconciliation was a good thing. This is now the bad thing. In fact, this is what Foner has essentially said for years. It was an unfinished revolution. Reconciliation interrupted the natural process of having a complete revolution in the United States, a political, social, and economic revolution. What's interesting is they peel off that economic part because obviously the Republicans were not Marxists. There were Marxists running around out there without, without question, but the dominant strain of the Republicans uh, in terms of economics was not Marxist. And so they peel that off. They save that for a later day. But they want the political and social revolution. So by saying it's an unfinished revolution, reconciliation interrupted that, and all you had were a bunch of these racist Americans getting together and deciding that they were going to forget about what the war was really about, which was a social justice crusade. You see, that's the problem. It's reconciliation that people are against. It's Booker T. Washington that they don't like. They don't like Booker T. Washington. Why? Because Booker T. Washington was a reconciliationist. Reconciliation is actually the thing that saved America. If Reconstruction had continued, America dies again. The United, or at least when you say the United States, America was already living. Um, as, as Granny said in the Beverly Hillbillies, the war was the war between uh, you know the Americans. <laughs> and the North, right? I mean, this is what the war was. The North and the Americans. So America was going to survive, but the United States would not have survived any longer had Reconstruction con continued. I mean, look, you can't get past the fact that in 1876, there was major discussion in the South again about secession because they lost the 76 election through fraud. Tilden was defeated through fraud. And they're saying, we can't even win an election. We're out of here again. So reconciliation was the only thing that was going to save the Union. I think they forget this. Because most Americans 
were in favor of it. And Northerners were not duped. Northerners were not duped into this. They believed it. As Nicoletti has shown, as Blair has shown, these people believed it. Northerners believed that the South, a minority of the North, but enough when you put it together with the South, they believed in the fact that the South should be brought back in the Union, fully brought back in the Union. We should forget about this stuff and just resume. This is what Johnson wanted. It's what Lincoln wanted to do. Lincoln was talking about resumption, not reconstruction. Resume the Union. Sand slavery. But resume the Union. Let the South deal with the other issues. I mean, the North had dealt with these things. Let the South deal with these things. But that's not what the Republican, the, the radicals of the Republican Party wanted. They were against reconciliation, but most Americans were for it. So what you start looking at here is it's against, it's an anti-reconciliation position. But what would the United States look like without reconciliation? I mean, look, in the early 20th century, virtually every Republican president was pictured with a Confederate flag. Harding, Coolidge, Taft, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, and then even going forward, uh, after that, I mean, you have Franklin Roosevelt with flags. You have John F. Kennedy with flags. Heck, you have Bill Clinton with Confederate flags. This is reconciliation. Jimmy Carter with Confederate flags. That is reconciliation, you see. That is the South being a viable and valuable part of America. But that's not what anybody wants anymore. On the, in the Republican Party... I've already talked about the neighbor's book. And what he said to me was that, look, I love the South. I want the South to understand it was wrong. And if the South can understand it was wrong, then we can save the South from itself. This is a Republican. He's a conservative. These are the Straussians. These are the Claremont uh, Institute Straussians. The Jaffaites. This is what they believe. And they're so-called conservatives. So you don't even need to be a phonerite to see that uh, this is what both sides, the nationalists essentially on both sides, want. So if you really want to talk about something that's viable and valuable in the post-war period, it is reconciliation. Without reconciliation, the United States looks tremendously different, vastly different than it does today. And so many beautiful things came out of reconciliation. We can talk about how there was... Uh, obviously, uh, uh, abuse of people in the North and the South when it came to minorities. I mean, this was going on. This is, uh, you know, this was not something that we should say this was good. I mean, obviously not. Uh, there was some to talk about having an Ida Wells statue put up. Ida Wells was a crusader against lynching, which is a good thing. Lynching was heinous. There's no justice in that. There's no legal process to pull people out of jail, even if they're in jail, and go lynch them. It's awful. Hideous stuff. Should never have happened. Southerners should have known better. Northerners, who were doing the same thing, should have known better. In fact, one of the worst lynchings in American history took place in Nebraska, of all places. Will Brown was a man that was lynched. And so these things are terrible, and you can't say any of that was good. But certainly some of the other things that came out of, recon this, out of reconciliation, uh, I just attended a conference all last week about music. Music. And all of the major forms of American music came out of the South and that reconciliation. And 
white artists and black artists were playing the same kinds of music, and you put all that together, and you get the sound of America. That is reconciliation. Just one, one example of reconciliation. America would not have a sound if it wasn't for reconciliation. I mean, this is important. And actually, one of the attendees at the conference said, you know, if all this got out, there would be a whole lot of less racial tension in America. It's true. You see, what this anti-reconciliation message does is stoke identity politics. It stokes all of these nasty things that both the left and the right are doing now. It stokes it. So a reconciliation message is actually a healing message. It's a peaceful message. Um, and one of my favorite parts, and I'm going to end the podcast with this, one of my favorite parts of the, the week was a discussion of a Southerner named Billy Walker. And Billy Walker was an ardent Confederate. He was a slave owner. And uh, he was known as Singing, Singing Billy Walker, Singing Billy Walker. And you had the words to this hymn that everyone loved. It was written by John Newton, Amazing Grace. But nobody had a melody to it until that was recognized around the country and then later around the world as the melody for Amazing Grace. And you know, Singing Billy Walker wrote it. So here is an ardent Confederate slave owner writing the melody to Amazing Grace. And the, and the title of his uh, hymnal was The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. And I find that so fascinating because the Black Crows, who's a band that I, Southern rock band that I like, their second album was titled that, The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. So here is a band, I mean, Billy Walker again, was a slave owner, Confederate. I don't know if they knew that when they put the title on there. And here is a guy that is, I mean, that tune, everyone knows it. Around the world, a slave owner Confederate came up with that. So anyone that sings Amazing Grace is practicing reconciliation every time you sing it in church. If we had this message, here's a man, a Southerner, writing this melody that one of the most beloved tunes on the world, not just in the United States, in the world, was written by a guy like that. Wouldn't that go a long way to having a discussion about reconciliation? I think it would. That's what we need to focus on. And this whole idea of calling Southerners traitors for secession, I'm going to end with that, but I mean, this is just ludicrous. It's stupid, and it's good to see a couple of mainstream academics talking about this stuff. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. (laughs) 